Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone, welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Debbie Sharnak about her new book of Light and Struggle: Social Justice, Human Rights, and Accountability in Uruguay. This came out this year at the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. And listeners, I'll start by letting you know that Debbie and I know each other from graduate school, so we spent a lot of time talking about her book, and I'm really extra excited to share it with you here today. So to get started, Debbie, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in history and in this topic in particular? Of course, I'd be happy to. Um Well, my interest in history really stems from my broader interest in human rights work. I definitely uh, didn't necessarily expect to become a historian. In fact, in college, I had interned at several women's and human rights organizations. And after college, I ended up moving to New York City to work at what was at that point a relatively young NGO, which was called the International Center for Transitional Justice, or otherwise known as ICTJ. And the organization had offices all over the world and did work in various uh, contexts around the globe. But I think it was most influenced by South Africa, actually, and its direct desire to institutionalize thinking about accountability and truth commissions on a broader global scale. But my own particular um, experiences at ICDJ were also extremely influenced by Latin America as well. I was in the research unit at ICTJ, and my boss was Pablo de Greif, who was Colombian. And the president of ICTJ by the time that I arrived was a man named Juan Mendez, who had actually been a political prisoner in Argentina during their dictatorship. And after being released, in part due to an Amnesty International campaign, he ended up coming to the United States and in the latter parts of his career, ended up being president of ICTJ. So I would say that having both been a minor in Latin American studies as an undergrad, and also because of the direct influence of who I was working with at ICTJ, I was really interested in accountability in that region. And in fact, Uruguay perhaps didn't play a huge role in ICTJ when I was there as a staffer, but As I've argued in other work, Uruguay was kind of left out of some of the foundations of the transitional justice literature because it didn't employ a lot of like truth commissions and trials like Argentina and Chile did during the immediate transition. In fact, Uruguay actually passed an amnesty law that I'll talk about today, I'm sure, in 1986, and it was upheld by a popular referendum. But when I was at ICTJ in the early 2000s, that actually changed quite drastically and things began to change in Uruguay um, during that time period. And so at the point in, you know, 2000, 
2005 through 2010, it was one of the most politically stable countries and actually becoming one of the most progressive countries in the region. And so it was at that point, actually, where advocates in Uruguay decided to put the amnesty law before a popular referendum in 2009. Um, And so the idea was that advocates would potentially overturn this impunity law that had been in place since the 1980s. And what was really shocking and what I was learning about at ICTJ is that why it failed. And this was such a perplexing question to me because, again, this was a region where, um, and this was a country rather, where it was politically progressive. It was a stable democracy. It was also during a point internationally where Catherine Sinking would eventually call it the justice cascade. There were norms about holding trials that seemed to be shifting internationally. So why did such a stable democracy not overturn the impunity law? And so by the time I went back to graduate school and eventually had to decide on a dissertation topic, those questions about what happened in Uruguay in 2009 led me to look back at a much earlier period to try to understand its period of dictatorship that would set it up to understand this later period as well. And what I really was interested in what the period of dictatorship could tell us about how Uruguayans conceptualized human rights, how they advocated for them before, during, and after the dictatorship, and how they worked with and influenced global movements for both human rights and accountability at the time, and how that could, I guess, eventually tell us something about the ongoing accountability battles in the 21st century. Okay, that's really interesting. So your book is looking at human rights um, in in Uruguay, and it is giving us that overview history of how, how human rights are being conceptualized and how accountability comes to be questions afterwards, as you've kind of previewed here. Um, I wanted to start by taking just a, a step back um, to talk about human rights more broadly. Um, this There's a lot of scholarship about human rights, and your book is stepping into um, that scholarship and that historiography. Can you give us a sense of why Uruguay is a good place to look at human rights and why it's been overlooked in as a place to study human rights, even though there's a pretty large historiography of human rights by now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Uruguay is overlooked <laughs> in the historiography for a variety of reasons. One is pretty much a straightforward reason, right? One is its size. It's the smallest country in the Southern Cone and that over time has meant there's been less attention and coverage of the country, not only in what we see as news media, but also very much in the historiography as well. But I would argue that for my story, right, thinking about um, accountability, especially in Uruguay, another reason that it's left out is because it actually didn't employ any sort of accountability mechanisms for at least the first two decades after its transition, right? As I mentioned previously, like Chile um, had a very famous truth commission. Argentina had a truth commission and trials in the immediate aftermath. And so Uruguay has really been left out of those broader studies about how human rights fit into transitional processes, but I actually think that's what makes Uruguay so interesting uh, for, for both of those reasons, right? Starting with its size. Because 
its small size has meant that it's often kind of left out of these broader coverage and, and broader histories of the region. But it actually meant that during the time period, both human rights groups and eventually the Carter administration as well, thought that it could kind of test out new policies in the country because of its size, right? So case in point is, just to give one example, is Amnesty International in 1976, right? Amnesty International at this point was a pretty well-known organization. It had been in existence for 15 years already, and it was really well known for its prisoners of conscience approach, right? So they would take kind of one person that had been imprisoned for political per- for political reasons by either a government or a regime and advocate these like massive letter writing campaigns and advocacy campaigns around an individual getting released. And actually, um, Uruguay, during its dictatorship, had the highest rate of political incarceration in the world. And it was kind of that, uh, along with, you know, a few other factors like wanting to bring torture into its agenda that made Amnesty International say, wait, if it's inadequate to have just an, if there's, you know, such a large portion of the population that's being imprisoned, and we need to kind of change our strategy. We can't have an individual approach to addressing political imprisonment in Uruguay. So this organization that just the next year ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 1976 decides to shift its strategy and try out something new by, for the first time, having a country campaign that didn't just focus on one individual, but the broader practices of political imprisonment and torture. And it used Uruguay to test this new strategic direction of the organization. So this is a clear case where its size actually provided it an opportunity to be taken up by Amnesty International to test out a new strategy. So its size ended up having a huge impact, but we need to study what this meant and what the implications were. So I think Uruguay is a really important case study to think about issues of human rights. But the other reason I would argue, um, kind of thinking about it as an outlier to, for example, accountability literature that makes it such an important case to study is because the debates about not employing what we now know as transitional justice mechanisms in the immediate aftermath of its transition back to democratic rule are still really fundamental debates that take place in countries that are thinking about accountability after state violence or mass atrocity and how to balance, for example, the needs for justice with the needs for basic needs and social and economic rights. So looking back to this historic case of why and how a country chooses to not immediately employ accountability, but does so over time. And what those reasons were, I think, are really important questions about political trade-offs during transition that still have relevancy today. Okay, great. I want to return to some of those questions about current relevancy a little bit later. But before we do, and before we go any further, uh, I was wondering if you might just give us uh, the history of Uruguay 101, so to speak, and give us a quick little um, overview of the country's move into dictatorship and then move out as well for listeners who might be interested in human rights and transitional justice, but maybe not know this specific country's history. 
Of course. Yeah. Um, when I talk about Uruguay, I always do, you know, need a nap, need an overview. It's because, because it is so not well known. So I'm happy to do so. Um, well, to start off, I guess, to think about Uruguay um, in the late Cold War period, I'm going to like take an even further step back, right? Isn't this always what historians do? You ask a question about a certain period and they're like, well, to understand the certain period, you have to look decades or centuries before. And I think key to understanding Uruguay in the late Cold War is to look at how it became um, a country where this would be such a surprising development, right? A dictatorship would be so shocking. And Uruguay, um, in especially in Latin America, but around the world, was known starting in the early 20th century as kind of the Switzerland of South America. It's a very well-known moniker that, you know, people still talk about even today when they mention the country quite frequently. And what happened in the early 20th century was... Um, under the presidency of Jose Baje Ordonez, um, he held two presidencies in 1903 to 1917, and then again from 1911 to 1915, because um, you can't hold two consecutive presidential terms in Uruguay. So he held two terms, but not back to back. And what he did was do something really important, was basically to um, create a, a social welfare state, right? Uruguay had been very strong economically on the basis of ex its export economy. And as a result, it uh, be under Baje's vision, he created an interventionist state that sought to provide essential services, enhance general welfare, and ensure international sovereignty for the country. So what was seen as like incredibly progressive policies at the time, like an eight-hour workday, progressive taxation, universal education, um, a strong healthcare system, it wasn't perfect, but it was a broad array of social and economic rights that were guaranteed and people came to believe were part of the fundamentals of an Uruguayan state. The reason that I bring this up is because by the time the export economy began to falter by the mid-1950s, what it did was really create kind of a structural and political identity as well as an economic crisis in the country. And what this meant is by the 1960s, there was a, a real grappling in Uruguay with trying to understand how to deal with this new economic reality because the government was struggling to try to handle the economic crisis, but Uruguayans were rightfully so unwilling to give up its idea of the social welfare state that had come to define it and that had, citizens had come to expect from the state. And as you might imagine, in addition to these national factors, there were a lot of international factors going on as well, right? Thinking, for example, the 1959 Cuban Revolution. And so when we think about how to deal with um, citizens and a government in crisis with one another, it was not only student movements that were arguing for continued, um, you know, free university and... Um, the same say in their curriculum and not only political unions that were trying to protect um, all of the um, protections that they had for workers. But then you throw in um, people that think, you know, on the backs and trying to emulate what had happened in Cuba with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara ultimately overthrowing a repressive state. 
there were there was a group that was created in Uruguay called the Tupamaros that were trying to recreate it in an Uruguayan context, right? Create um, foco theory, but not in a rural context, but in an urban context. And so what this meant was this milieu of political upheaval during the 1960s came to a head ultimately with the coup in June of 1973. And in addition to many other Cold War dictatorships that sought to repress any perceived leftist subversives, this was the same justification that was ultimately used in Uruguay in order to create the dictatorship there. Um, and I can go into a lot more detail about the pre-dictatorship period, but just to understand the kind of guarantees of the social welfare state in the first half of the 20th century, the political crises and um, kind of moment of how to deal with that, and the state kind of coming down against all of those that were advocating um, for a say in the government that ultimately created the national um, security crisis that they saw that they felt needed to be addressed by instituting a dictatorship. Okay, great. That's really helpful. Um, so before we come back to talking about what's happening in the dictator during the dictatorship, especially with all of those uh, different kinds of groups that you mentioned were fighting for social and welfare rights leading into the dictatorship, let's talk for just a minute about uh, the the end part of your book's history, which is how the dictatorship ends and what happens afterwards. Can you give us that brief um, arc before we come back to the questions of human rights and human rights activism? Sure, absolutely. So, so yeah, so if we talk about the official date of the dictatorship starting in 1973, and one could argue that the repressive practices of the government actually existed before then, um, quite many years before then, um, the dictatorship ended up lasting officially for 12 years from 1973 to 1985. And the years of the dictatorship were really characterized by, um, you know, hardcore and anti-communist government that wanted to not only root out what it said was, you know, these guerrilla groups like the Tupamaros, but then anyone that it perceived as a subversive on the broadly defined left. So this ended up being much more broad again than just uh, people that were taking up arms to overthrow the government based on very radical um, political visions um, that grew out of the 1960s. This included like uh, opposition political parties, um, the unions, the, the student group, and you know I can go on and on and on about who, who they who they were attempting um, to root out. And the dictatorship, as I as I've mentioned in the book, is characterized by high rates of political imprisonment, most people that were politically imprisoned being tortured, and hundreds of disappearances. So the dictatorship as I said, lasted until 1985. Um, the kind of roots, and I can go into this in a lot more detail at a later point of the transition, I guess, started in 1980. Um, there was actually this really fascinating political plebiscite where the military dictatorship was hoping to kind of institutionalize its rule by passing a constitution. Um, and 
that attempt to have the people vote on a new repressive constitution that would institutionalize the rule actually failed in 1980. And so this definitely didn't transition them out of power, but it was basically five years after that of negotiations that ultimately led to the November 1984 elections, where ultimately a democratic government took office in March of 1985. But I should at least mention the fact that um, in those 1984 elections, they weren't like open, fair and free elections. The military put great restrictions on who they were going to allow to run. So they had to approve um, some of the candidates. Some people were automatically prescribed. So we can definitely debate the extent to which 1985 demonstrated full democracy for a government that didn't allow for free, open, and totally fair elections in 1984. But that was the official demarcation line, I would argue, um, of the transition back to democratic rule, at least. All right. So with that arc, let's start talking a little bit more about the human rights aspects. As you just mentioned, during the dictatorships, there were very serious, very clear human rights violations taking place. Uh, But a key part of your book is discussing the fact that the term human rights does not always mean the same thing to all people. Uh, There was something of a coalescence around a narrow definition of the term to focus on those disappearances, the torture, that kind of violent um, human rights violation during the dictatorship. And then a subsequent fracturing of this definition, as I understand it from your book. Could you talk a little bit about this definition of human rights and what's going on with the ebb and flow of how human rights is defined um, within Uruguay, moving from before, during, and after the dictatorship? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So I think one of the really interesting things that my book is trying to do is to look at how human rights as a term is not fixed, it is not um, you know, static, and that it changes over time in response to the political emergency of the period. And so in the pre-dictatorship period, right, especially in the lead up to the official closing of parliament and um, the elected leader handing full power over to the military in 1973, what you see are very broad and contested visions of human rights that not only talk about things like the torture and political imprisonment that was already happening before the official dictatorship, but that are talking about human rights in terms that focus on those early 20th century visions of the promises that they believe Baje had made and that had been instituted ever since in the country, right? And all of these guarantees about a basic level of human dignity and what life should look like in a country like Uruguay. Um, And so what happens during the dictatorship is not that those ideas about social and, and economic rights are completely ignored or that they're completely forgotten by these groups, But what you do see is a narrowing of focus around political imprisonment, torture, and the disappearances that were coming. Part of the reason that this narrowing occurs during the dictatorship is, I would argue, um, quite strategic. 
Right. Um, if we look abroad, right, and my book is not only looking at what's happening in Uruguay, but it's looking at the transnational responses and kind of the international bureaucracies and the U.S. U.S. foreign policy and how they responded to what was going on in Uruguay as well. And so if the terms of human rights that were emerging abroad and becoming really salient for organizations like Amnesty International, for example, that was quite a powerful organization by the mid-1970s, if that's political imprisonment and torture, and that's what hap- was happening in Uruguay, there was a political calculation for exiles to try to reach out to them to get them to pressure the Uruguayan government to stop those abuses. Um, so there was that strategic level of what activists would attempt to do. But I would also say that it's, it's not that they were, you know, strategic at the expense of being earnest, if that makes sense. Because we have to think about, you know, I, I, this is something I talk about in the book, but I don't think I've mentioned here is that, you know, because of the massive abuses that were taking place in Uruguay, about 10% of the country fled abroad during this period. Now, that's a pretty incredible number to think about, right? That's 300 to 400,000 people in a country of about 3 million. Um, so that's a, 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 a huge portion of the population that was going abroad and also beginning to advocate for better conditions for the friends that they had left back home. We have to think about who was leaving, right? These were people that were being persecuted, that they had either themselves suffered t- political imprisonment and torture and, you know, found them deplorable practices or had friends that had suffered them. So there was a real strategic way that those concerns were being elevated at the international level during the height of the dictatorship. But as you also mentioned, you know, we call this kind of, or I call this, I guess, kind of a fracturing during the transition back to democratic rule. And it's not that this fracturing or this kind of divergent concerns didn't exist during the dictatorship. They absolutely did. But what you see after that plebiscite in 1980, as the possibility for a transition becomes real, is that all of a sudden, these aren't the only terms that people want a restored democracy to be on the basis of, right? It wasn't enough for these activists to say, okay, we're happy now, if all, all you do is stop political imprisonment and torture and disappearances, right? They're saying, we actually care about what this state looks like. And we don't want the neoliberal policies that are being instituted by this military government. We also want to return to, you know, having dignity in the lives of our workers, having access to education, having access to healthcare for the broader population. So this becomes really important terms that, you know, had held together at least at some level during the dictatorship, but become very important points that kind of diverts concerns, I would argue, at certain points of the transition, because they're either recovering earlier notions of social justice that had been so foundational before those emergency politics took took precedent, or as I also talk about in the books, groups that had been marginalized prior to the dictatorship and had perhaps received even harsher treatment during military rule also were organizing on behalf of those identity politics in the transition back to democratic rule as well. Okay. Yeah, this seems like a story that we see in a lot of social movements where during this particular period, there's a nice uh, or 
nice might not be quite the right word, but there's a focus, um, a more intense, acute focus on a particular narrow definition and organization in order to deal with this acute crisis. And then as there's some progress made, kind of what the next steps should be become um, a point upon which not everyone agrees within the movement. There we see some of that kind of fracturing. But as you just mentioned, during that focus within the dictatorship, within that kind of more narrow definition of human rights, there are also other concerns that are left out. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about those concerns that are left out. And then also the ways in which, as you've mentioned, having this narrow definition allowed for a, perhaps uh, let you define more effective international movement um, to take place. So let's start with uh, the folks left out. You mentioned uh, groups like um, LGBT people, you mentioned Jews, you mentioned Afro uh, or Guajan, excuse me, my um, pronunciation isn't great here. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about one of those groups and what's taking place for them during the dictatorship, how oppression looked a little bit different um, than the more general political oppression and what that experience meant for this larger alliance and um, movement for human rights. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, chapter two of the book is probably a little bit of a long chapter, but it not only talks about the nature of the dictatorship um, in the 1970s and the international response that arose in response to it, but it also talks about who's being left out of some of that international response. So the, the kind of value of narrowing the human rights discussion um, to appeal to, for example, Amnesty International and the Washington office in Latin America by focusing on um, political imprisonment and torture and disappearances is that was what their concern was. And it, it really was galvanizing, right? It's hard, for example, to say like, yeah, we don't agree that people shouldn't be, um, you know, not tortured in Uruguay, right? So, so that was very strategic and, and, and had real value to it, especially because that was, as I mentioned, what so many peri- people had experienced or friends and family had experienced. But that doesn't really cover the full nature of the dictatorship and what was happening there. And that is perhaps unsurprising that the dictatorship also targeted minority or underrepresented groups in particularly harsh or different ways during the dictatorship. And this was almost completely left out of that international organizing effort. Um, So what I mean by that, and and as you mentioned, I talk about, at least specifically in the book, about Jews, um, LGBT, and also um, Afro-Uruguayans. And maybe I'll focus on Afro-Uruguayans particularly um, for just one moment, because they're probably... Uh, I think a really interesting case study, and I've done a bunch of other work on on what followed in the aftermath as well. But Afro-Uruguayans, um, you know, they were they were targeted, uh, you know, in, in many of the similar ways to the rest of the population. But Uruguay also, perhaps endemic in the kind of Switzerland of Latin America name. Um, had kind of ignored the fact that it had a pretty large um, and and did for many years after the dictatorship, arguably still today, um, the fact that they had a pretty large Afro-Uruguayan population. And so 
during the dictatorship, they not only were subject to the harsh treatment of the military dictatorship that everybody else was, but they also ended up being targets of the neoliberal regime as well. And what I mean by that is that part of what the military dictatorship wanted to do is create Montevideo as kind of an international banking center, right? And integrate it into the broader, you know, worldwide capitalist um, maneuverings. And this meant that they wanted to take over key real estate in the capital of Montevideo, um, which included um, historically black neighborhoods and black housing, which were which are called convent or were called conventillos, and they were in these areas that the government was attempting to take over as part of a broader gentrification process to kind of modernize the city and attract foreign invents foreign investment into the country. And so what they did was they used kind of very racially coded language to basically declare these areas as unfit for living, right? They basically, you know, to just give one example, they said something like, um, there are areas that are covered in filth and moral degradation, right? And they use those excuses to, and the landlords also like weren't taking care of them, um, you know, so this was, this was kind of a dual process of the government and the landlords making sure that these conventios would be, um, you know, fit to, they could argue that it should be destroyed. And that was exactly what the dictatorship did. So they literally bulldozed these, you know, tenement housing that were um, historically after Uruguayan neighborhoods. And there wasn't any real compensation for these uh, people that were displaced. And it was a kind of a form of internal displacement where people were shuttered to like both the physical um, and kind of imaginary of the state margins, right? Um, there's there's some case studies of them basically being given like horse sheds to live in with like paper, uh, paper boxes. Um, they weren't compensated for the fact that they were marginalizing them from their not only cultural centers of Afro-Uruguayan life, but also for the fact that they were, you know, literally taking them out of their houses. It was a dehumanizing eviction, to say the least, in a way that, you know, some people that were evicted compared to like the same dehumanization, for example, that occurred when they were taken from Africa and forced to come to South America as slaves. So it's it, it was, to say the least, a very um, incredible violation of their human rights. But as you might imagine, despite the fact that 10% of the population went abroad during this period, Afro-Uruguayans frequently did not have the means or connections to be able to do so. And therefore, when they were kind of kicked out of their houses, they were not attracting the attention of international human rights groups. They weren't able to connect, nor was that the concern of international human rights groups. Like even if they were able to go to Amnesty International, this wasn't Amnesty International's concern at the time. And so what this meant is that on a broader scale, by you know, although it was very effective to narrow the terms of human rights language to focus on the most prominent um, tools of the repressive regime, what it also meant is that minority groups and underrepresented groups that didn't have those means or didn't have the ability to connect those those networks were left out of all of the human rights organizations that was happening during the period of the dictatorship. Okay. 
and I want to talk more about how this narrowing focus um, did lead to more effective organizing, but especially given the really powerful stories you've just been mentioning, could you talk about a little bit about what happens with these organizing after the dictatorship and particularly with these groups that were not the focus during the dictatorship? Are they seeing a, a a different kind of spotlight afterwards? What happens? Trace that story out just a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I I found that this ultimately proves a really galvanizing moment. And just to continue with the Uruguayan example, I think it's really important to understand because during the transitional period and back to democratic rule, you know, after Uruguayans, which had been marginalized within Uruguay for arguably centuries, they decided like, we need to be able to make ourselves more visible and, and be able to advocate on our behalf as citizens that are worthy of state recognition. And so there were groups in the aftermath, for example, uh, you know, probably the most well-known one, Afromundo, which was kind of an umbrella organization. They began to um, organize on behalf of, you know, um, Afro-Uruguayan uh, women, Afro-Uruguayan youth, um, trying to, you know, for education, because the, the dropout rates were much harder. There was the acknowledgement of, you know, trying to create um, more newspapers that would value the cultural um, contributions of Afro-Uruguayans to the Uruguayan state in the aftermath of the dictatorship. So what you find is that during the dictatorship, their marginalization from both international human rights definitions was very real, but it was also very galvanizing during the transitional period as well to organize on the basis of those identity politics as well. And there's been a lot of advances, particularly in the last decade or so, um, from Afro-Uruguayan groups, for example, right, thinking about making yourselves more physically visible in the state and accountable, Uruguayans hadn't been included in, in the national census since the 1850s. And therefore, it was able to allow people to kind of make um, kind of guesses about how many Afro-Uruguayans were in the country. And generally, people would say for a very long time, oh, it's only about like 4% of the population. Well, um, these groups, Afromundo kind of leading the way along with quite a few other groups said, no, we need to be counted. We need to be visible to the state. And therefore, finally, um, in 2010, they were able to be included in the census. And what they found, it was actually double those initial numbers. It's actually 8% of the population, which when you think about it being double the estimates, that's quite significant. And they were able to show, okay, well, what were the rates of um, poverty? What were the rates of schooling? And it was well below the rest of the population. And it was on that basis that they were able to advocate, for example, for um, you know a, an affirmative action law that was passed. This is I've written on elsewhere. That's it's beyond the scope of this book, but I've written elsewhere on a lot of these um, measures because it's so important to see how the period of the dictatorship and the organizing afterwards, which is what the book does co- uh, cover ends up leading to real advances in subsequent decades. That's really interesting. Thank you for bringing in um, some of those stories from your other work as well. So let's return to the period in the dictatorship and the uh, kind of the heart of your book. 
and talk a little more about the organizing that does occur during that period. Um, as you know, I'm a U.S. historian, so I'll ask the more U.S.-centric question here. Uh, how does the U.S. fit into this story? Um, as perhaps many people know, Jimmy Carter, president during part of this, and has a reputation as a human rights advocate. Um, but you argue here that the U.S. was more resistant and reactive uh, than the image of his presidency might suggest. Uh, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what's happening here in this on this international stage between uh, the activists and all of the different players, both within and without of Uruguay and the U.S. and this Cold War context? Absolutely. Yeah. So. The United States um, has a repu- had a reputation, as as many listeners of your podcast might be familiar, with interventionism in Latin America, particularly the Cold War dictatorships. And actually, during the early 1970s, um, this Uruguay is no exception. Um, and in the, I have a whole chapter of the book that details um, and you know the United States' relationship with Uruguay during this period. And the first half of that chapter deals with Nixon and Ford really supporting the moves of the military dictatorship and being quite resistant, um, as you mentioned, um, to the, um, or attempting to be quite resistant, maybe is a better way to put it, to both international advocacy on behalf of what was going on in Uruguay, right? Human rights groups that were saying to the United States, like, you need to do something about what's happening. And also two congressional advocates that were saying, listen, we need to, we can't be supporting these types of regimes. And it takes in ni- until 1976. So before, before Carter came into office um, to cut off military aid to the Uruguayan dictatorship because of the Koch amendment. But that's again, not because of the Nixon or Ford administration. It's actually in spite of their resistance that congressional advocates and human rights groups are able to work together to get that passed. Now, I think that the reason my book tries to complicate this is because like many other historians, what I'm trying to show is that the Carter administration did not lead the charge for human rights in Uruguay, right? Carter kind of joined a train that was already going in quite full motion because of these international NGOs um, on the basis of working with their Uruguayan counterparts, as well as congressional advocates that had been arguing for four years already for the, that the United States needed to change its policy. The Carter administration did, however, become quite an important partner um, in, in this battle, at least in Uruguay. Um, But again, my argument is not that it led that, but it actually followed these other groups. But what I find so interesting actually about the Carter administration is that it did use Uruguay as one of its kind of test cases as what it saw as, quote, like the one of the worst violators of human rights where it could test new policies, right? There's this great quote I found, for example, in um, one of the policy memos um, at the Carter Presidential Library between um, Anthony Lake and and the then Secretary of State Cyrus Vance that basically said something to the effect of like, our bilateral interests are so modest that our prime interest in human rights. And that's a real difference than, for example, even like Chile and Argentina, 
where they were balancing um, a lot more attention and a lot more strategic interests in the region. And so what you see in, in Uruguay, because they don't have quite the same pressures as some of those more, those bigger countries, and this is why small countries are so interesting to study, is that you see a pretty concerted human rights policy by the Carter administration in the country. You know, Carter had so kind of, quote, little to lose diplomatically in these relations that his administration, ultimately his local embassy staff, which he basically handpicked to really focus on human rights, ended up, excuse me, ended up having quite a big influence in the country. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about how all of these campaigns, whether they be the the partnership with the U.S. or the Amnesty International, the um, local movements, the expats, etc., how, what comes out of all of these? What is the outcome, successes, failures, etc.? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Even the best case scenario, (laughs) with Carter at least, um, going back to that, is... I think we can certainly say that there were real limits to what international pressure could accomplish within the regime, right? I think what actually what's really notable is that Uruguay kind of immediately, both in response to amnesty and in response to the Carter administration eventually, claims like real victimhood in being targeted by what it sees as kind of like a or what it calls at least, um, as like a communist conspiracy against their country and a violation of their sovereignty. So it's really interesting how Uruguay takes that very defensive position um, in response to um, all of the human rights pressure that's coming from abroad. That being said, I think one of its the greatest successes that both together the advocacy campaigns by non-governmental groups and human rights groups, as well as with the Carter administrations that it does, is it ends up compelling Uruguay to hold this 1980 referendum, right, that I had mentioned very briefly earlier, right? So if we if we kind of like trace out this timeline for everyone again, the official dictatorship starts in 1973. There's a lot of human rights advocacy by human rights groups pretty quickly that's eventually joined by the Carter administration in 1977. And I think a key important point that I haven't mentioned before is that despite the fact that the dictatorship really targets the left very broadly, as I mentioned, what they do is they don't say flat out like, oh, we're going to target political unions and we're going to target students. What they say is we're the reason that we need to create a military dictatorship and the reason we need to hand over is because the Tupamaros, right, the guerrilla group is posing a fundamental threat to our country, right? And we, in order to root out this threat to the nation's survival, we need to take office. Now, the fact of the matter is, and we now know this, and people at the time kind of knew it as well, is that the Tupamaros had basically been defeated in 1972. Um, so a whole year before the official military dictatorship started. But if that argument barely held power in 1973, one can imagine is that seven years into a military dictatorship, right, where there was complete control of the population, that argument had even less legitimacy. And you kind of pair that on to the fact that there were now seven years of NGO campaigns, four years of the Carter administration campaigns to change its practices. 
that the Erdogan government decides that they're going to um, accede to at least some of the pressure. And what they decide to do is hold a plebiscite, right? And so what this means is that they're going to have the population vote on a new constitution, right? This sounds good. This sounds democratic. Now, the new constitution actually institutionalized their power and gave them a lot of kind of more permanent emergency powers for the military government. But again, what are they saying to all of these critiques that are coming from abroad? Well, we're going to have a vote. Votes sound democratic, right? Um, we're going to like let the people have a say in whether they want us to rule or not. And the um, Uruguayan military is kind of um, buoyed by the fact that in neighboring Chile, um, Augusto Pinochet, the dictator, the dictator of Chile, he has um, a plebiscite very similar to this, asking the population, okay, like, do you want to see me continue in power or not? And he controls the vote. He doesn't really allow for much debate. And he wins with over two-thirds majority. And he's able to see, say to everybody, like, look, Democratic vote, I win. Uruguay's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> kind of get everyone off our backs, at least temporarily. We're going to do the same thing. So they have this vote. It takes place in November 1980 and actually you know, people are saying like, this is a farce, uh, you know, a lot of like international uh, NGOs and advocates are saying like, this is a farce, this, you know, the, the idea that they're gonna have a free and fair election is crazy. Um, but kind of shockingly, and you know, that's what people said at the time, like, it was like a miracle, right? They actually win this vote um, by 57 to 43%. And what this means is that it does, again, it doesn't happen immediately. It takes multiple more years for the transition to actually occur. But it's this real juncture point that becomes extremely important in the story of the Uruguayan dictatorship. And one could argue, at least, that like this is one of the kind of tangible successes um, that all of that international advocacy produced. I can name other you know, potential successes and also show some of the limits. But I think in terms of what's most important to see what potentially came out of came out of this advocacy, this vote, which ended up opening the door to starting to negotiate a transition and also open the door to restarting the ability to have a domestic human rights presence began really with that vote. That was a response to a lot of these criticisms. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit, how, how does the military miscalculate in this plebiscite? How, if, if it's not a free and fair election, how is it that they end up, the military ends up losing? Yeah, that's a great question. Chapter four goes into a lot of the specific details about that. But there are some differences, for example, between what occurs in Chile and what occurs um, in, in Uruguay during this period. One is that, um, just kind of like the, the mechanics of it, which is that, um, you know, the military is so kind of overconfident in their ability to win this plebiscite, right? There's the adage, like, dictatorships don't like, lose plebiscites. They really believed it, is that they kind of don't stand there at the tables as people are voting, right? So there's this, like, really, like, logistical, like, that did happen in Chile, it did not happen in Uruguay. They also, in order to, like, claim any democratic legitimacy, they did actually have some very limited and controlled debates, right? So it was actually broad, there were three debates that were broadcast on television um, that, you know, I talk about in kind of great detail in the book, but, you know, 
for the first time, having someone stand up to the military ends up being quite important. And there was also like a lot of underground advocacy that was going as well. Um, like, you know, there's great stories of, um, you know, like, uh, for example, like the windshield wipers, everybody having them on um, in leading up to the period as like, you know, it's shaking no almost, right? And so there was kind of, and there was a lot of like underground um, passing around, for example, of like Wilson Ferreira, who was one of the opposition leaders that was in exile at the time, um, his messages being, you know, covertly passed around to vote against the dictatorship. So, so there was some of the, all of that that was taking place that was really important. The chapter also talks about like the human rights implications of this vote as well, just to kind of go back to the overall purpose of the book, is that from abroad, you heard all of these really fascinating like human rights denunciations, right? Um, people shouldn't vote, although there was a lot of censorship at the time, right? So it didn't always translate abroad. You heard this like human rights justification why people should vote against this plebiscite, right? And, and vote not to institute this new constitution. But domestically, it was like a really different calculus and a really fascinating conversation to watch. Because what you end up finding at a domestic level is that the opposition groups are not using a human rights language for, you know, really strategic purposes, right? What they're saying, they're not going around being like, you have to vote against this constitution because the military is torturing us and, and uh, imprisoning us. And um, you need to make sure that this isn't going to continue, right? Because what would that have done? The military would have just arrested these people. So what domestically the conversation from the opposition that was taking place is that the opposition was saying, listen, we are a historic democracy. The military government shouldn't stay in power and we need to vote against this constitution to restore democratic norms to our country. And it was actually the military that was saying, listen, we're fighting, we, we were fighting the Tupamaros. We were, um, human rights is not an international defined concept. It's defined by a state, right? It's a violation of our sovereignty for people to claim we need to do things within our border that we don't want to. And, um, that that's that's what this constitution is going to do. Is it's going to allow us to define to human rights in a way that makes sense to protect our country, right, and for our own national security purposes? So, if you heard human rights during the domestic debates, it was actually by the military, which shows kind of how interesting it is of how human rights can be defined by certain actors at certain moments. But what I argue in the book is that at some level, the failure of the military to win this plebiscite is also a failure of their project to redefine human rights on their terms. And that it's actually an example of, how, of kind of the success of human rights at the period, even though opposition actors domestically weren't using the language as such during that period. Okay, thank you. It's just incredibly interesting how this language of human rights is shifting so much and that those shifts are really important to how uh, the dictatorship plays out, how um, these these battles are won and lost or um, a little bit of both. Um, and with that, I 
do want to talk before we go a little bit about the transitional justice aspects that we started with. And that, uh, as you mentioned, your interest in this project began in the transitional justice space. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what the book or what you found as you were researching the book and what you write about in terms of why uh, you don't see an immediate move towards the kind of traditional transitional justice model um, within Uruguay as the dictatorship falls. Absolutely. Yeah. So I should also be clear. And I I talk about this in the book, like the term transitional justice didn't exist at this time period. It didn't come about till, till the 1990s, but like we now kind of ex post facto write it back onto the situation. So I need to at least, you know, provide a disclaimer for that as I'm about to talk about it in TJ terms. Um, So, so one of the arguments is the book is like, why, why did Uruguay not employ at least immediately a lot of the same um, what we now know is transitional justice mechanisms, um, like its counterparts did in the region, for example. And what my book tries to show is that this was not a foregone conclusion. Um, it wasn't like, okay, well, it's just Uruguay as, as a society decided not to do this. And so, you know, I have a whole chapter and I, if I'm not mistaken, this is, I think, chapter six, where I talk about there was this real moment of possibility after the transition, right after the, you know, March 1985, where the possibility for very similar mechanisms did exist, excuse me, exist in Uruguay, but didn't get off the ground, right? There were actually 22 months. And so what you see in the immediate aftermath is, you know, they set up a commission of inquiry that ends up not doing much, but they had it, right? This, at least a commission of inquiry into what happened to the disappearances, um, Trials started, there are all these cases, and I, I focus particularly on the group of Ilser, um, you know, was one of the main groups to file like all of these petitions domestically to bring these people to trial and kind of model what was happening um, in Argentina with the trial of the Junta. Um, and there were also um, maybe now what we would call reparations at the time was called kind of restitution measures that were starting to move through. And what happens over, you know, because it's 22 months between the immediate transition and the passage of the amnesty law, is people think this is actually going to happen in Uruguay. And there's kind of two factors that derail it. Um, One of them is the military itself, right? The military um, starts saying things like, you know, we're not going to stand for trial. Um, We're not going to come to, um, you know, we're not going to show up. Right. And this is like a very fragile new democracy of people that have lived through 12 years of dictatorship. And the military is like threatening not to show up at trials, which obviously would create a constitutional crisis. Right. And so that begins to derail the process because that's what ultimately produces the passage of the amnesty law. It's not like, oh, we decided like we're just not going to have impunity. The amnesty law is passed on December 22nd, 1986 hours before the first members of the military are supposed to show up in court to begin their trials, right? So the amnesty law and kind of the stoppage and movement against, um, you know, account any sort of accountability, at least in the court system, is derailed by the military itself, right? And the politicians that ultimately accede to that pressure. 
But the other thing that happens of why it's not pursued, at least initially, is what ultimately happens in an attempted referendum process, right? So the Uruguayan constitution that in 1985 is, is reinstituted provides for opportunities for popular referendums. And the process is, okay, if 25% of the population signs a petition in order for you know, a law to be questioned, then it can be overturned, it can be put before the ballot and potentially overturned. And in fact, if the law, is, the law was passed on December 22nd, the very next day, um, citizens you know, stand up and say, we're going to launch a referendum attempt to overturn the amnesty law, right? So again, like there was this real possibility for accountability, the amnesty law is passed, and then it's immediately revived that they're going to have accountability again. And it's kind of the last chapter of the book that details what happens between December 1986 and when the referendum is finally held in 1989 of potentially why it's derailed during this time period. And part of it, you know, it's, it's a very like, complicated story. And, you know, you would need another hour of the podcast for me to detail perhaps all of the factors. But to highlight, I think, two of the most important ones, it's that there's so much stonewalling and, you know, backlash and attempt not to hold the referendum that ultimately a lot of the momentum against the amnesty law that you see immediately after it's passed kind of dissipates because, as you might expect, not the entire population is going to spend three years or what, or I guess two and a half years just focused on the referendum. In fact, it's not that human rights as such becomes, you know, a less of a concern during this time period. It's that what sort of human rights people are spending all of their time on does kind of lose its potency, right? Um, or, or I guess maybe not lose its potency. Human rights take on much more expansive definitions, if that makes sense, right? So all of these, you know, historic, broad social and economic rights, these groups that were partners to the human rights groups in Uruguay that had been so important in pushing for transition, all of a sudden, you know, they're focused again on, um, social and economic rights, and not just accountability. It's not that they don't care about it, but in terms of organizing, you know, a broad-based movement to the entire population, that's not the focus of all activists anymore. And again, a lot of these people that were targeted during the dictatorship, they're also focusing on, you know, what we might call now identity-based rights concerns, right? There's a lot of feminist organizing that's taking place during this time period because on feminist issues, there's a lot of LGBTQ groups that are emerging to focus on what had occurred to them during the dictatorship, both before and after, and their poor treatment during, um, before and after this time period. And again, with Afro-Uruguayans as well. So by the time the referendum happens, there's, there's a lot less concern, you know, overall focus on um, human right accountability for those specific human rights abuses that had occurred during the dictatorship. There's also, and I'll just mention these other, which like at least briefly without going into a lot of detail, is there's also, you know, fear of people of potentially another coup. And I would argue the main group that was organizing the referendum the Comisión Nacional Pro Referendum, CNPR, they also weren't discussing the, the referendum in human rights terms as such. They were discussing it on democratic terms, which potentially had, had a lot of relevance 
with getting the petition signed initially. But by 1989, when democracy was much potentially much more secure, there weren't other elections taking place. Um, there might have been, you know, mistakes made in that, uh, you know, advertising and organizing process as well. Okay, that is an incredible answer. And as I think the answer makes clear, this is a really rich portion of your book. And there's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, but we've uh, already taken quite a bit of your time. And I hope that our listeners will read your book and learn more about all of the details that we haven't discussed. Um, but before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the research. Um, one thing that I always find striking when I read work about um, human rights um, and about the kinds of histories that you're writing is, of course, just how incredibly powerful and um, in many instances heartbreaking the stories you're talking about are. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about doing the research for this book and about writing a book about this topic. And particularly, you mentioned in your book that you did a lot of oral history interviews. If you might just talk a little bit about those both or either perhaps um, their importance to your work or um, how you went about doing them and just a little, little bit about that research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think from a pure research perspective, I went to well over 20 archives for this project. And because I try both at a kind of national level in Uruguay and then international level and kind of transnational level, it made the research complicated. And of course, like I wasn't able to capture like, you know, the book is already a little bit long <laughs> and, um, you know, probably would have been really long if I had captured everything. But um, I did research across, you know, Latin America, right? Not just in Uruguay, but also in Argentina and Chile, because I do look at the influences and discussions between local human rights groups, um, as well as, you know, the connections with international ones. I think there were important lessons and influences, particularly from Argentina that I talk about in the group that are really important for Uruguay. Um, so I look across Latin America, obviously in the United States, both with NGOs and also some NGO repositories um, like the World Council of Churches and Amnesty International were both in Europe as well. Um, I looked at, so I look at um, NGO libraries. I look at more institutional um, archives as well. Like, for example, everybody in the U.S. will know, like presidential libraries and NARA and also the U.K. National Archives. Um, so there was a lot of um, research that was done at both, you know, very typical institutional libraries, but also um, in Latin America, what you found as well is there wasn't like even NGO libraries in the U.S. and Europe, for example, like are very organized. And, um, you know, I, when I was looking at Amnesty International USA and America's Watch, for instance, in the US, I was at Columbia University and their traditional processed archives. And that's just not the case at NGO archives in Latin America. Um, so for instance, you know, uh, uh, one of the funny, quote unquote, funny stories in Latin America is by looking at Zerpach was one NGO that I spent quite a lot of time at. And, you know, I went there to, you know, quote, look at their archives as I had written in my email. And they're like, here's our closet with some filing cabinets and feel free to go through them. Um, and that's what I did, like looked at, you know, files, every, you know, it wasn't, 
organized. It wasn't processed in the same way that we might expect as like a, somebody that focuses a lot in the United States. Latin American scholars will know exactly what that process is like. And I think that was very rich. But as we've talked about quite a bit today, um, I was also really interested in stories that had been left out of main NGO organizing. And so recovering those stories that had been historically silenced, both at the time and I think in the historiography, you know, these groups that were underrepresented, finding information about them was a lot more difficult. And oral histories were incredibly important to um, making sure that those stories and those experiences during their dictatorship were included was was really critical. And, you know, like many people that do oral histories, you talk to someone who recommends talking to someone else. And that was a key way um, that I was able to connect with some of those other activists and, and organizers that had been doing work and um, had had, you know, really poor treatment during the dictatorship as well. And so those oral histories in order to figure out um, and incorporate those historically marginalized voices was, was incredibly important. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you you did a great job with the research and really were able to tell a complex multi-layered story. And I hope that all of our listeners, um, will take the time to read the book. Um, and as we wrap up, are you working on a new project or the, your book really just came out? So perhaps thinking about a new project at this stage? Yeah, um, I'm very lucky. I've, I'm like full steam ahead, actually, with this process. As other readers know, the academic, um, the academic publishing process is long. So even though it officially just came out, uh, much of it was wrapped up about a year ago. Um, and, you know, I had been debating a few different next projects. Um, and this next one very, very much stemmed out, out of this um, out of this book project. So one of the things I didn't talk about a ton today is the experience of Jews during the dictatorship. But in chapter two, I really do um, highlight how Jews as an underrepresented group in Uruguay were in fact targeted by the dictatorship in very different and, you know, at times more explicit ways. And, um, you know, it's part of chapter two. It's actually their role during the transition was very complicated. I don't pick it up again in chapter seven. Um, it didn't kind of fit in the narrative and, 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 you know, maybe that's a critique <laughs> that they don't, they don't come back in chapter seven, but I, I had thought a lot about it and had done a, a lot of research. And in fact, one of the kind of interesting finds in the Uruguayan foreign ministry archives was I had found all of these memos from a U.S. based rabbi. His name was Morton Rosenthal and he worked for the ADL, uh, the Anti-Defamation League. And he had been contacted by Uruguayan families that were talking about how their family members were being very poorly treated in the Uruguayan prisons by the military dictatorship. And what are you going to do about that? And shouldn't they have been released already? And why don't we have more information? It was all these memos from him. And I, you know, it's footnoted in the book and it's super interesting. And I kind of left it at that um, for the purposes of this book project. But 
another, you know, to go back to us going to graduate school together and um, the larger University of Wisconsin network, I have to mention Britt Tevis, who um, was actually doing some consulting for the ADL. And I'd kind of told her when she did this consulting, started this consulting last year, I was like, oh, yeah, one of the, you know, the rabbis that I mentioned in my book was at the ADL. And she and her work there had actually stumbled upon a memo about how his boxes were basically sitting in a warehouse in, you know, northern New Jersey, um, untouched because, they you know, the ADL doesn't have publicly accessible archives, um, but actually specifically mentions this memo that she had found the work of this guy. And she was able to connect me through a, a series of many emails with many different people to finally um, get me access to his boxes, which was just incredible. So I was on a sabbatical this spring and I was able to basically travel into New York City where they had ordered all these boxes for me from the warehouse. And I was able to sit there multiple times a week and go through them. And so that's really prompted the next project, not just about Uruguay, not just about the ADL, but looking more broadly about U.S. Jewish groups' responses to the proposed anti, the alleged, sorry, alleged anti-Semitism of the dictatorships, not only in Uruguay, but also in Chile and Argentina, and how U.S. Jewish, you know, various Jewish groups, so not just the um, ADL, but looking at the, AJ, the American Jewish Committee, looking at uh, the New Jewish Agenda, a leftist group, looking at the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, how all these different Jewish groups in the U.S. dealt with um, the different experiences that Jews were having in all three countries. As you might imagine, it's a really complex story. Um, Jews within the country uh, and all three of those countries did not agree. Not all the Jewish groups in the United States agreed. But I think it asks really interesting questions about how we can look about how organizing took place on behalf of historically persecuted minorities and to spotlight the importance of these transnational networks specifically in the United States in response to the alleged anti-Semitism and the efforts at self-preservation of these groups in situations where Jews had very little political power. Um, and so, again, it's, it's just the beginning of, of that research. I was very lucky to have an NEH summer stipend that's just ending, that I was able to do a ton of research and really get this project off the ground quite early. But... Um, but yeah, that's where I am on the next project. And hopefully before too long, I'll be able to put something out on it. Well, that sounds wonderful. It sounds like you are making great progress. And I have to love a, a good project that has a nice Wisconsin connection still to it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And I hope that we can perhaps talk about your next project when it's finished. Wonderful. Thank you so much for asking such great questions and having a wonderful conversation with me.